0: Are you ready? I'm ready. Perfect. Thank you for joining us on The Change Artist, where we bring our listeners stories and great advice for leading and following through change from business leaders who are making a difference in their organizations. I'm your host, Alyssa Cox, and here on The Change Artist, our motto is, if change is the only constant in life, then let's do it better. And this season, we're focusing specifically on psychological safety. What is it? How do we create it? And how does it help us build change resiliency on our teams and in our organizations? So let's jump right in, Marcelino. How do you define the term psychological safety when it comes to the workplace?
1: Really good question. First of all, I'm glad to be here, uh, uh, Alyssa. I I like the uh, the definition that my good friend Timothy Clark uses uh, of psychological safety as an environment of rewarded vulnerability. Right. In other words, a, a, a place or a relationship or an environment where being yourself isn't costly. Uh, and that, that's that's uh, the definition that uh, that he uses. He probably would explain it better than I would. I, I like it because when you talk about change in the workplace, and every organization is undergoing some kind of change, I mean, that's, that's the constant, right? It follows that for change to be very effective, people need to be able to contribute to, to that change, as opposed to just being led. They need to contribute to that change. People that, in organizations where where people are just waiting to be led are too slow. That's not sustainable. And so to engage people in meaningful change, to engage people in actually creating change, it requires that people feel safe to, to contribute to that change. And that requires a, a an environment of rewarded vulnerability where I can be vulnerable. I can be myself. I can put my ideas out there without being punished.
0: Wow, there is a lot to unpack there, and we are definitely going to dig into this. Now, for those of you who don't know him, Marcelino Sanchez is a managing partner at Agilitize and a sought-after practitioner, trainer, coach, facilitator, and speaker. He is dedicated to increasing the change agility of individuals and organizations. Now, I want to dig into something you said around rewarded vulnerability. When we talk about reward, what kinds of rewards are we talking about here?
1: Well, let, let me illustrate the, what, what what rewarded vulnerability is not to uh, to illustrate the point when somebody comes to you and says hey mom i'm sorry i did this and you get upset right if i get upset as, as as a father when when my son or daughter comes to tell me that they broke a window or something like that that's not rewarded vulnerability what i'm doing by getting upset uh is punishing uh even if i don't you know say anything you know just the fact that i upset uh is it doesn't feel good to the individual so reward rewarded vulnerability is about people not feeling that kind of punishment that doesn't mean that that they are not held to account that, that that's not what it means it means that when we hold people accountable it doesn't feel like a punishment right so let me give you an example of children and family relations uh, one day one of my sons was excited to go to prom and uh, he took my car he was so excited that uh, he hit the the, uh, the button to open the garage door, but for some reason the garage door didn't open all the way. He came back down and he did not notice that. He puts the car in reverse, backs into the garage door, <laughs> right? Just as he's leaving for prom, he tell he comes back and says, "Dad, this is what happened. I come out and I see the door is, you know, dented, and I knew I had a choice to make. I had the choice to get upset, which would be part of you know sort of uh, natural for me I don't have to work hard at that or I had a choice to to just let it go and say hey have a great time and I knew that that that, that would make a huge difference in in a moment of lucidity I decided to to opt for the second choice and I said look we'll talk about it later just go have fun after he left then I looked at the door and then I threw my fit but but it wasn't without him I I didn't have to punish him you know once I looked at it, I thought, okay, okay, it's going to cost me this much to change the whole thing. And he came back and I decided not to make it a big deal. And, and he, he felt terrible. There was no need for me to to belabor the point. He felt terrible about it. He apologized. There was no need for me to do anything about it because, you know, he he was already feeling bad. But what it does is it, it says, hey, you can come to me. You can You know, we can talk about things and and even if if there are difficult things, we could talk about them. By the way, he did have to work a little bit uh, to pay for about half of the cost of, of the door. and uh, And when we had that discussion, he was more than willing to do it because he 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 knew that it was his mistake. So again, it's not that we don't hold people to account. We do we can hold people accountable, but it's about rewarding that vulnerability as opposed to punishing it
0: so as I think about, and this is not a parenting podcast, but I'm going to use another kid example here because as I do at home with my kids, I also do with my coworkers, which I'm sure there's somebody that I can have on the show that can deconstruct that for me and unpack that for me. But, you know, when I'm working with the people on my team, when I'm working with my kids and I want to hold them accountable, I want to see that they recognize the feedback that they've been given, the error that they've made or the mistake that they've made, or the the improvement that's required, and that they've really internalized that, and they're going to move forward and behave differently in the future. And I have sometimes a hard time diagnosing whether the message is getting through. And so it sounds like, in your case, you were able to see the contrition. Your son recognized, hey, this was my fault. I'm going to own this. Once you've said, I recognize that I made a mistake here, I'm going to own it. I no longer have to keep belaboring this thing that you did wrong or this thing you need to do better. How do we recognize that turning point in our audience?
1: Part of it is taking time out. Stephen Covey, in his Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, talks about being response able, right? Being responsible, being able to control and to dictate your own response as opposed to reacting. And, and so, and, and the key uh, that, that he talks about is to rather than react in the moment, to take a time out and create space for us to be able to think. Okay, what just happened here? Uh, what's you know, what am I feeling? What's my reaction? And rather than, than take it out on the individual, being able to come back with a response that is more responsible, more more response able. And and to me, that that makes a huge difference. Let me give you an example. When I was very young in, in my career first job out of college i was entrusted with a big project and it was a big deal and i made a mistake i totally underestimated the level of effort required to use an outside consultant and when i realized that i knew i was going to be over budget by a lot and i felt terrible i went to my manager to confess and i said i made a mistake we're going to be over by a lot of money what i thought was a lot of money you know now looking back, I realized it wasn't that big of a deal in the big scheme of things. But to me, it was a big deal because I was trying to prove myself as a young professional. And my manager, to her credit, she she did not react. She said, Thank you for letting me know. Let me think about it. So she makes she made that space, right? And then we we came back to, to to discuss it. By the way, I was afraid I was gonna get fired right there and then when we started the discussion again she was very composed she was never upset at least not that i could tell and we talked about it and she said okay well what do we need to do and and she engaged me in in coming up with a solution Um, i'll tell you what i felt a, a, a much greater sense of not only ownership but also accountability because the last thing i wanted to do was to to repeat that mistake and so you know again taking that time out i think is very important to um to create psychological safety
0: And I liked in your definition when you talked about psychological safety as sort of an underpinning and necessary underpinning to a proactive approach to change, that if we wait for change to come to us, that change is going to be too slow, that we really need to be leaning into change and looking for opportunities to change on an ongoing basis. And so talk to me about some of the companies that you've worked with, some of the clients that you've worked with, some of the experiences that you've had where you've seen this proactive approach to change and you've seen it really pay off for the stakeholders involved.
1: Well first of all, proactive change is not the same thing as chaos. Reacting to chaos a lot a lot of times people in in corporations where you have a lot of change going on, chaotic change. Sometimes companies say, "Oh yeah, you know we we thrive in change." You know, putting up with chaos is not the same thing as thriving in change. I worked with a, with an organization that learned how to look at an issue from an objective point of view, as opposed to people giving their own biased view of the problem. They learn how to look at the facts, look at what's causing the problem, rather right, root cause, and then very quickly coming up with solutions that address that particular problem. In, in, in one instance, uh, you know, we were able to, in a in a single session, they were able to identify uh savings that they didn't believe were possible prior to that discussion. But what it takes is of course, using the right tools and the right approach is important, but even more important than that is the ability for the group to be able to speak freely, to speak candidly, and that requires psychological safety. So in my work with clients, I don't get the the luxury of working with them for a year so that they develop psychological safety. I I need to be able to to help them to get there. Very, very quickly. So, as a consultant and as, and as a facilitator, what we can do for a client is, is to set in the groundwork for them to be able to engage. Now, that that team was able to engage in a very meaningful way. They told me they had never been able to do something like that. They were able to to uh, find millions of dollars in savings, which was great. But that team was not ready to repeat the process on their own, right? So that they were able to see, hey, this is doable. We we have what it takes. Uh, and in this case, you know, it took a third party uh, consultant to help us with this, but they, they were able to then uh, see what's possible. And then they said, hey, we need to do more of this. What does it take? And, and that shifted their mindset, right? And so they were able to learn, you know, how to do that on their own uh, eventually. And, and, and we were able to do that. We were able to provide them the skills and, the, and the, give them the tools, but also uh, give them the principles for creating psychological safety uh, so that they could do that on their own.
0: Sure. And it sounds like what you're describing here is sort of the difference between organizational agility actually thriving in change versus putting up with the chaos and some of them perhaps more traditional, sort of the traditional domain of change management. How do you think about organizational agility vis-a-vis our traditional conception of change management?
1: The difference is that organizational agility is both a competency and a mindset. Uh, I think from my, from what I've seen, traditional change management is mostly focused on activities, right? So the difference between a series of activities or a, a competency and a mindset. Now the activities are important. Let's uh, you know be clear about that. So for instance, you know doing a a stakeholder assessment that's an activity that's important, but having a mindset of you know having the stakeholder in mind that's different. Uh, having the competency to be able to read culture and to understand culture—that's that's a competency which doesn't come just with the activities of the traditional change management model. Uh, the other difference is that, and I think this is beginning to change. I hope this is beginning to change. But for the last 50 years, change management really hasn't changed a whole lot. We're still using old notions of planned change that thrive that, that were thriving in the back in the eighties and nineties, uh, in earlier event, To me, organizational agility is about using agile principles and mindsets applied to change. In other words, let's not assume that change is discrete. Let's not assume that there is a clear beginning and a clear end. Let's not assume that it is the only change. In, in any organization at any given time, there's gonna be multiple changes. When an organization approaches change from a traditional change management point of view, they're going to say okay we're going to apply change management to this initiative you know an sap implementation for instance well guess what there's also you know other big changes going on at the same time well we need to think about change and change agility from a very holistic point of view so rather than just throwing a bunch of activities at the sap implementation let's think holistically about how do how do we enable the organization to be more change agile so that they can do not only SAP implementations, but also other type of transformational change.
0: And as you're moving in this direction of agility, as you're moving in this direction of transformation and ongoing change, what do you do with the traditional concept of resistance to change? Now, how do you get people on board and how do you think about addressing even just the concept of resistance to change as you're looking to make this both mindset and methodology shift within your organization?
1: resistance is one of those concepts that I think it's part of the old-fashioned classical change management thinking. In any organization, you'll hear people say people resist change. Uh, I believe that the notion of resistance is not only outdated, it is unhelpful. Here's why. I believe that resistance is a label that people, I, I shouldn't say people, that we use to blame other people for our inability to change their behavior for your listeners. Just think about the last time that you told your teenager to clean their room. How well did that go, right? And when they don't do it, our natural tendency is to blame them to say that they're just messy, they don't listen, blah, blah, So what we're doing is shifting the blame to them because we were unable to influence their behavior. And it happens in organizations all the time, right? Where we say, hey, we're going to go do X, Y, and Z. We're going to do." Go do a lean, or we're gonna go do a, you know a new IT tool, or we're gonna implement a new management philosophy, whatever it is. And when people don't follow through the way we expect them to follow through, then almost immediately the language that we use is you know they are resisting the change. Here's why why that's unhelpful, because when we blame them for our inability to influence their behavior, we're not only putting the onus on them, it's not our fault. Okay. I like the concept of rejection better than resistance. Rejection assumes that people don't have enough evidence to accept the change. And when we assume that, the whole game changes. Instead of blaming them for our inability to change their behavior, rejection says, hey, we have not provided the right amount of evidence, or maybe we have not provided the right evidence. Therefore, the onus is on us as leaders, as change leaders, as parents, as managers, to provide the evidence. That evidence could consist of, hey, let's you know give you some clarity around this, or maybe I need to develop more trust with you. I, I need to you know establish a, a greater relationship of trust, or maybe I need to involve you in a way that allows you to see how this is going to pan out and how uh, this benefits you. So those are just some examples of how we can build evidence that creates acceptance versus rejection. You know, I'd say the first thing I, I encourage change leaders to do is to to erase, to delete. You know the, the word resistance from their vocabulary. Now, that's not to say that there aren't people who wake up in the morning thinking, how can I sabotage this thing? I just have not met very many of them. That's not the majority of the people. The majority of the people, I think, go to work and really mean to do the right thing. They really want to do the right thing and they want to do their best. They just haven't seen how the change that we're proposing to implement is consistent with what they feel is the right thing to do. So, again, the the, the key here is to provide them with the evidence.
0: And I like this contrast and compare on language between rejection and resistance, right? Because a lot of the literature and psychological safety delves into psychologically safe environments being those where we can provide feedback, provide pushback on the work, but it's not personalized. Yes, You're not being personally attacked when somebody tells you the work needs to be better or we need to go about this in a different way. And resistance feels like a descriptor of a person, as opposed to rejection of a specific piece of change or a specific change behavior, which then brings us back to, let's talk about the work and puts rejection of change back into the confines of of a psychologically safe arena, as opposed to resistance, which can be personalized.
1: Right, right. Because you're, you're not personalizing it. From the world of the law of physics, one of the laws of motion is that every action creates an equal and opposite reaction. And when you think about resistance, right, what we are doing is pushing, and people feel like a, like they're being pushed. Well, what's the natural tendency is to push back, okay? And, and then it becomes personal. And when we do that, we're going to war. And when we go to war, nobody wins, right? But, but if we say, hey, maybe they are rejecting because they don't have enough evidence Then we don't go to war. We avoid all of that. What we are doing rather is creating an environment where it's safe to talk about things because, you know, nobody's getting pushed. Nobody's feeling pushed uh, to do anything. But rather we are we're discussing the evidence. And, And when we discuss the evidence, we can be more much more objective and therefore there's much more safety.
0: Now I know we've had a ton of great insight during our conversation but I'm going to ask you for one more thing. If you were going to give our listeners one more piece of advice on what they can do to move the needle on psychological safety in their own teams and organizations, what would that piece of advice be?
1: Invite people and meet them where they are. Let me explain. When it comes to change, it's very easy for people to feel like a victim for for the recipients of the change. So, Invite them to the party, invite them to the planning process, invite, invite them in whatever way is feasible to invite them. In other words, involve them. And then rather than you expecting them to come to you, you go to them. Literally, one example might be when I find the stakeholders, I go to their office and I say, hey, you know, you know, this, this is going on. What, what do you make of it? What, what's, what, what's your take, right? I, I want to understand where they are coming from so that then I can meet them where they are. Once I understand that, then the next question might be, you know, what do you see as a benefit? And what do you see, what, what are some of the questions or concern that, concerns that you have? Once I know that, then I can couch the invitation in a way that's easier for them to accept. And I say, hey, how do you see yourself being involved here? What, you know, what, how can you, you know, become involved in a way that meets your, your needs? And now we're having a conversation about them becoming involved, right? But also doing so in a way that they feel comfortable. Because if I just invite them to come to the, to the party and say, hey, come get involved, but they feel uncomfortable because they don't feel safe, uh, that invitation may not be accepted. So I need to invite them, but also meet them where they are by understanding uh, where they're coming from. And, and it is really as simple as having conversations, opening conversations with them. One uh, quote that I like, Can't remember the author, the the quote is, if you want change, change a conversation, right? Change can begin by asking different questions. And once you change that conversation, it's much more feasible, much more possible, probable that people will say, you know what? I'll come along with you.
0: I love that. Well, thank you, Marcelino. I know I've learned a lot today and I'm sure our listeners have as well. Now, if our listeners want to connect with you directly or learn more about Agilitize, how should they go about doing that?
1: Agilitize.com is our website Uh, and my email address is Marcelino, M-A-R-C-E-L-I-N-O at Agilitize.com. Agilitize being spelled like agility with a Z-E at the end, Agilitize.com.
0: Perfect. And we will be sure to include those links in the show notes. I really appreciate your time and perspective here. Hopefully our listeners can take your advice and apply it to their own teams. If any of our listeners would like to talk about bringing these kinds of conversations to their own organizations, they can visit us at blueswiftconsulting.com to schedule an intro call. Thank you again, Marcelino.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.